Welcome to Season 3 of Upwelling, where we bring the richness of local literature to the airwaves. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Today I'm pleased to interview Guerneville resident and award-winning short story writer Daniel Koshner about his recent collection, Separation Anxiety, and Mendocino Coast poet Windflower about her upcoming release, Age Brings Them Home to Me. Daniel Koshner is a teacher at the UC Berkeley Extension, a writer, and a mental health counselor at a group home that serves the unhoused and the mentally ill. He has released four books. He's won the Willa Cather Fiction Award, the Novella Prize, the Missouri Review Editor's Prize, and Christopher Isherwood Fellowship. Separation Anxiety is a collection of edgy stories that address modern situations, day-to-day interactions with strangers, and the fractured world we inhabit. Thank you, Daniel, for joining us today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Daniel's going to start by reading a short story set in the New York subway called Brooklyn Bound Q. See if you can spot the literary reference in the story. Brooklyn Bound Q. She enters, takes a seat on the crowded bench opposite him, meets his gaze distractedly, and then peers into her handbag. He looks down and then across the car to the left and the right of her. He lets his eyes roam and return to settle upon her glossy paperback. Is he brave enough to read the title? Sure he is. He's interested in the book, in books, in what people are reading, not in her. She adjusts her glasses, scans the car quickly for an open seat as if to say, I don't want your attention. He averts his eyes as if to say, don't flatter yourself. Now he's interested in footwear. He smiles approvingly at the feet of an old man in purple high-top sneakers, as if to say, I have many interests. I value novelty, surprise, and risk. She is amused by her book, lets out a sigh, and briefly smiles as if to say, I don't even know you're here. The train stops. Two men in suits depart, and two teens, a girl and a boy with backpacks and hoodies and baggy black denims, shuffle into the space between him and her and take hold of the overread railings. The teens commence a conversation. I read it, the boy says. All right, who Nick? He the one that's telling the story. Who Daisy, then? She the white chick that the other one is all hot for. All right. Who that other one, and where he from? He looks up. She looks up. She smiles briefly, as if to say, I remember that book, or I remember high school. Or doesn't this seem ironic, these kids in this time speaking in those terms about that time? He smiles too as if to say, isn't the subway a magnificent experience? Or isn't it better when we don't hide from one another? As if to say, you and I, we are of the same background, the same class. We understand each other. The boy answers, his name is Jay, like my man, Jay-Z. You don't know crap, the girl says. He grins, she grins. The train stops and the teens depart. Her eyes revisit her book, dart back to him and back again to the pages in front of her. He permits his smile to linger and allows his gaze to settle on her in an unfocused way, as if to say, I'm at ease, I'm pleased, you're safe, I'm interested. She brushes her bangs with the back of her wrist as if to say, I know you're watching, as if to say, I'm not uncomfortable, as if to say, I don't know what to say. She closes her paper back, and with unusual care, she puts it back into her handbag. She is saying that her stop is next. He bends to pull up his socks, as if to say, I didn't mean to embarrass you, or now you can look at me, or this is my stop too, maybe. She stands, turns to face the front of the train, turns her hips towards him, and pulls down the hem of her skirt. 
She looks down and up and back to the bench where she had been sitting. She finally risks a glance in his direction as if to say, Are you going to follow me, you creep? Or, It's now or never, or simply, Goodbye. He sets his hands on the bench beside him, as if to steady himself for when the train slows down, or perhaps to say, I'm getting up. Give me a sign. His face pleads. His eyes implore. Eight and a half million people here, and I won't likely see you again. I'm not a creep, but... The train comes to a full stop. People exit. People enter. A crackling sound comes, and then a weary voice fills the car. Next stop is Times Square. This is a Q train bound for Brooklyn. Change here for the NRS 1, 2, 3, and 7 trains. Stand clear of the closing doors. As if to stay, stand clear. The doors are closing. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. That's the, one of the shortest stories <clears throat> in the collection. I used to take Bart all the time to work. Oh, yeah. And so I was always watching people. <laughs> and I used to make up stories in my head all the time about the people around me. I would get myself in trouble by vacantly staring at someone. <laughs> what are you looking at? You know, in New York, especially. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what is the connection between the doomed love story in The Great Gatsby and these two strangers on a train? I like the question a lot. And I have to confess, I didn't really think hard about it when I put it in there. I wanted a couple of names that would be immediately familiar that people could pick up. This is a high school class, Uh but it is a doomed love story. And there is a sense that this attraction, I guess I have to call it, will will come to an end soon enough. Uh And so uh, it it was really only meant as that. There was something, the the sense of anachronism to, to place that story in the midst of the New York subway in this time felt felt sort of fun to play with. Mm-hmm. Do you often have literary references in your short stories? I think they pop up now and again. Yeah. More probably pop music and things like that. But there are, there are some. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we are left in the end not knowing for certain if the man has enough courage to follow the woman. The first time I read it, I thought he chickened out. And then the second time, I doubted my first thought. Do you know and will you tell? I don't know. It okay. kind of ends before the moment where he could make a decision Uh and I I think that's where I wanted it to stop in the sense that uh, these are moments that come along and sort of taking a a wee step back that the whole idea of separation anxiety is it sort of permeates all the stories and here is a sort of very broad view this is not a, a couple of attached people it's not a parent and a child but it's a little glimpse into how it affects us all the time, I think. We, we feel an attraction, we feel some interest, in, and we see that it won't go anywhere. The opportunity passes and it's over. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that was a way of introducing that as a, a sort of a broad, a broad sense of that theme. Okay. In her short story, Happy Endings, Margaret Atwood says, So much for endings. Mm. Beginnings are more fun. True connoisseurs, however, are known to favor the stretch in between, since it's the hardest to do anything with. I agree about beginnings. Starting a new story is thrilling and keeping it going is fun, but I find the ending to be the hardest. What are your thoughts on beginnings, the middle, or ending? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. Um, I think even with that one, too, I might want to say, take a step back. I don't write long fiction. Some of the stories get pretty long, but I've never tried a novel or never finished a novel. And so there's something about the story form, I think, that allows a kind of fast culmination and if I can get to the point in the writing, if I find the voice and I find the predicament and I can get to that moment where I see where it's going, then I can, I can bring them in. I don't always finish, of course, 
often it, it helps for me to have a sense of where it's going to go, uh, some sense of an ending, and then sort of work my way backward to get there. Mm-hmm. Margaret Atwood, that's a great little essay. It's very dark and very funny. And I, I think it's, it's really eye-opening about the, the process. Mm-hmm. For her, they, they all end in death. Right. That's, right. <laughs> that's the only ending we can come to. And that's that's true in a way. And somehow the, the fiction brings us to this bright sense of possibility if it works. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So do you prefer the start or do you prefer the middle or do you prefer writing the ending? I think I prefer the start. Well, should I say that? It's easier to get a start. But if I get to the end, then I'm very happy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I, I think that's fair. You know, you're the first primarily to short stories or publishes short story collections that I've had on the show. Oh. Kind of some little different questions here because, you know, short stories are hard to get published. I mean, there's a lot of people out there writing short stories. Right. And uh, the fact that you've been published as much as you have and you've won so many awards it indicates that, you know, this, these are really good stories of value that people should be who are interested in short stories should be reading so that they can understand what it takes to get your work out there. Mm. What kind Thank of you. thing are people looking for? Every one of the stories in Separation Anxiety has been previously published, which is your success rate 100% or do you have the oh, cachet God. of rejection emails we all pretend are badges of honor? If you saw the, the list of rejections, we wouldn't have time to, to go over it. <laughs> yeah. So many. Um, some of the stories were sent out before they were really ready. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there are plenty that I've sent out that I haven't made it. This this book spans quite a few years. Some mm-hmm. of the stories are probably twenty or more years old, um, and so it's part of the part of the process was looking at what I'd gotten out in the world and what what form it could take as a collection. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of different ideas along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but were you yeah. were you like tempted to just like drop in one that hadn't been published yet that you know some um, you know darling story that you've written or something? I was. Yeah. I, and I had some pieces that uh, were sort of on the fringe. They didn't fit the theme quite as well. And, uh, but by the time the publisher agreed to it, uh, mm-hmm. I, I didn't really want to push those. I'd save them for something else. Okay. Yeah. You're listening to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell. We will return to an interview with Daniel Koshner, where we will discuss his recently published short story collection, Separation Anxiety, and his writing process. Daniel is going to read a selection from an ordinary love story. It is, I think, the longest story in yeah. the in the collection. I don't know what section you're going to read, but I found that story very interesting the way you pulled it together. So I'm really looking forward to talking about that. Should I say a few intro words about this story? If you want to, yeah. Okay. Just don't give anything away. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'll try not to. It's it's a very convoluted story in a sense. It's about fundamentally it's about a marriage relationship that's in trouble. The woman in the relationship, well, they're they're both parents. She's very concerned about her children as well. And in the midst of that, her husband gets in trouble with the with the law and uh, he's court mandated to go into a program. And so I'll read a little bit from his part and a little bit from her part. But also in the midst of that, she's decided to take a writing class. And that was just a lot of fun because that's the world I'm in. uh, The parody of the kind of replies that people get when they share was just fun to write. So there's her story and his story and the children's story. And then the story that she's writing that bounces back and forth and and throws light and shadow all over the place. (laughs) I'll start with a passage from him about how he met her. His name is Carl, and she's Betty. At the moment, he's in a program for drug and alcohol, and uh, 
people talk about the higher power, so he's coming to think about that. The highest power Carl had ever known was the feeling he'd had when he fell in love with Betty, the feeling that she loved him. The power was in him then. God, was it 14 years ago? It was mid-October, as it was now, with the same sweet scent of rotting leaves. Carl had first seen her at the one and only coffee shop in Duncan's Mills, where a dozen of his photos was mounted on the wall. He was a regular and did some odd jobs now and then for the owner. Betty was passing through and foolish enough to order the rum Danish, a three-day-old almond croissant recycled with a healthy dousing of booze to cover the taste of the mold. He watched her pick it apart and taste it slowly, thoughtfully, as if it were some sort of delicacy. He didn't think, dumbass tourist, as he often thought, when he saw a new face in town, he felt the strange desire to put his hand on hers, if only to make her stop eating that thing. He watched as Betty circled something in the newspaper, then paused to turn her ballpoint over in her fingers. When she lifted her eyes, she couldn't help but see him studying her. She blushed. She looked back at her paper, toyed with the handle of her coffee cup, and picked at the pastry. She was like a bad actor trying to look busy. To think of her trying twice, three times to swallow that little bit of Danish. He hadn't meant to make her feel uncomfortable, but he couldn't have taken his eyes off her if he'd wanted to. She stood to examine the photos on the wall, anything he was sure to turn her back on him. It's called river life, Carl said, standing two feet behind her. You did these, she said. Her voice seemed trapped and small. She cleared her throat and tried again. These are your pictures? Those are some of my friends, he said. They camp out year-round. I guess you'd call them homeless, but they don't think of it that way. Reminds me of, Betty bit her finger, Walker Evans, Carl said, one of my heroes. His pictures told stories, she said, and laughed. What do I know? I took one elective in college. She stepped closer to a black and white picture of a woman hanging laundry on a rope between two bay trees. The woman wore tattered sweatpants, a soiled vest, and a bandana on her head. Behind her was a bedroll and a small fire pit made of bricks and stones. She had pretty eyes and a masculine jaw. She was smiling, as if she had just heard something amusing. She queerly enjoyed the attention of the man with the camera. She calls herself Ma Kettle, Carl laughed. She's only 28. Can't be an easy life, Betty said. Summer isn't bad, he said, except for the tourists and the cops. Most of the year it's damp and cold. You've got to have a strong constitution. You admire her. When Betty turned and looked at his face, he was stunned. She was vibrating ever so slightly, like human fluorescence. I do, Carl said. I admire people who make their own way. That's what I'm trying to do, she said. I'm a tourist, but not for long, I hope. She put her hand out to shake and introduce herself. It was soft and small, but her grip was firm. He could tell she didn't ordinarily talk to strangers, and what he was experiencing, the pulse that traveled through his fingers, was the first hint of her resolve. He held onto her hand and pulled her to the next picture. This old guy, he said, pointing, is an original wobbly. He can tell some stories, but he's the crankiest bastard you'd ever want to meet. Betty swallowed. I'd like to meet him. And so it began. She rushed off to get a sweater from the seat of her VW bus. As he watched her return, he was stunned by her peculiar walk, hurry and hesitation, effort and grace. Uncertainty, even fear, made perfect sense under the circumstances. She was about to take a ride with a strange man, and probably far from home. He had known plenty of indecisive, muddle-headed people, but she wasn't like them at all. She was animated by her ambivalence. And maybe I'll stop there on this.
section. Right, great. We're going to go on and read some of her section, right? Right. Yeah, okay. This scene follows. Betty is at home with her kids. She finally got them to bed. And uh, Carl is in the court-mandated program for alcohol use. And uh, he's gone AWOL, and it's not the first time he's done it. And he's about to buy some booze. And he calls her from a payphone before he does. And uh, that's where that's where we leave off. And she's just gotten the call, and then the children wake up. So that's we find Betty at home. Betty can't go back to sleep. She doesn't want to laugh and really, really doesn't want to cry. No popcorn, no TV. She might like to write if she could see her way through Amber's predicament, if she had a queerer sense of what she'd like to have happen. When she had started, it was fun, something new to think about. It was as if the scenes were appearing before her eyes and she couldn't scribble fast enough. But now it's all become opaque and oppressive. She doesn't want to be alone, but who would she call? She can't help thinking of Carl, one of his familiar tirades. We're all scared crapless of one another, he often said. That's capitalism and the corporate media at work. Your neighbors are arsonists, pedophiles, and serial killers. Stay in and play with your toys. Buy bigger and better. If you need company, watch Seinfeld or Cheers. Watch Friends. All her friends were his friends. And where are they now? She doesn't want to be alone. Suddenly comes a pair of feet that look like small flippers with the socks sliding down. Here come hands pushing through a curtain, a mop of blonde hair, and eyes squinting against the kitchen light. Did the phone wake you up, sweetie? She doesn't expect an answer. She sweeps Ryan in her arms and carries him to the sofa. They snuggle under a blanket, and she enjoys the warmth of him. Now she hears the creak of a wooden ladder. Cassie descends from her loft bed. What's going on, Cassie asks, knuckles pressed deep into her eyes. Your father called. Oh my God, how is he? Betty lifts the blanket and makes space for Cassie beside her. Cassie sits. I don't know, she says. She puts an arm around Cassie's shoulders, and with her fingers she gently examines her long hair. He misses us. I miss him too. I thought you did. You haven't said a word about it, though. I didn't want to say it to you, Cassie says. They sit quietly for two minutes, staring at the black TV. Cassie's words have made Betty sadder, but also relieved. At least she feels she can tell me now. Cassie leans forward and says, Looks like Nuthead went back to sleep. I know, I could feel it. Your weight changes when you die, Cassie says. It's like your soul is leaving your body or something. I've heard that, but it has never been proven, Betty says. Mrs. Robinson said it in class. Since when do you listen to your teachers? I just think it's true, Cassie says. Do you think smoking cigarettes is bad for you? Betty asks in a mildly inquisitive tone. I don't know, Cassie says. Betty feels her pull away just an inch, but tensely. She pulls Cassie back and squeezes. She thinks, I've never been as old as I am right now. My daughter has never been this old. Every moment between us is a frontier, a cliff. You know, she says, you know plenty. They sit quietly for another minute. Mom, what? Never mind. I'm going to put Nuthead in his bed, Betty says. Are you going to visit Dad tomorrow? If he's not in some kind of trouble. Can I come with you? I was hoping you would. Betty <clears throat> is torn between the life she has and the one she imagined for herself. How does her writing the story about Amber and her missing twin 
reflect Betty's own personal chaos? Okay, yeah. That's a, it's a good question. It's a hard question. Betty has decided since uh, Carl's gone into this program to do something that would be a change for her. She's decided to take a writing class. And years ago, she wrote a story that won a prize for her. And she wants to go back and tell it differently. And it's a story based on a true story about these twin girls, one who disappeared. And so she wants now to focus on the other one. And within the realm of the story, one is well-behaved and one is not. And so she's decided to go back and look at the one who is well-behaved and allow her to take some risks in the absence of her sister. I, as I reread the story today, and it had been a while, uh, I realized that part of what Betty's working out in the telling of the story is, as you say, trying to come to terms with the life that she planned for herself and where it's gone. And it has a lot to do with her feelings toward Carl, um, but it also has to do with her feelings toward her daughter, uh, Cassie. And she sees Cassie at this kind of turning point in her life. There's a reference there in that passage that I read. Cassie, she witnesses Cassie smoking a cigarette. Um, and so she challenges her on that. Cassie's 13, I think. Um, so. so what's happening in the evolution of the story of uh, Carrie and Amber has, has a bit of bearing but it's really pretty open-ended. It's the story itself doesn't come to a full stop and nor does Carrie and Amber's story. I won't say the last line, but th th there's, there's a sense that going back to, to the quote that you offered before, there, there's more middle than end. <laughs> okay. This is one of the longer stories in the collection. It's a clever placement of a story within a story. Each tale has its own characters, plot line, etc. Why did you intermingle them? I think I like the idea of having Betty work out her, her own struggles, her internal struggles, through trying to tell a story. And it's a familiar world to me, so that was fun to play with. It also, just in a very mechanical way, it's a, it was a way of having Betty reveal some things about herself without too much backstory. Mm -hmm. Some things could happen in the unfolding present that would tell us about Betty, not with great certainty, but they would be revealing in some hopefully meaningful way. I've been in a lot of writing classes, and, and it's pretty clear to me that writing is a form of therapy. Um, it is for me, and I think it is for most of the people who are in the class or in the writing group. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a little bit mixed on that. I think sometimes it ha I have that sense about it. Uh -huh. uh, certainly not always. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you're a counselor, too, so you, you, you must be able to see things in a little both directions, I at guess. At the group home, what we often do is uh, I'll read a story to the group, and then we have discussions, which uh -huh. is quite nice because it, in, within that community, so much is focused around issues of recovery or issues about the house and chores and things like this. And so to be able to approach and come into a story on any terms that you want is kind of freeing. I, I, I enjoy that a lot. Are Amber and Carrie both versions of Betty? I, I think so. That makes yeah. a lot of sense to yeah. me. Yeah. Okay. Carl, <laughs> Carl, Carl. He represents as a typical alcoholic, and yet he's likable. So much so that when he takes steps that will ruin his whole life, you want to yell at him to stop. <laughs> so you've gone beyond the cliche and revealed his humanity. And does working in a group home help you manufacture empathy on the page for damaged characters? I think so, yeah. I mean, there's it's a bit of a, maybe a chicken and egg 
question in that. Um, I think I'm probably drawn to that work because it, I've never been comfortable with the idea of someone being simply labeled as, as a condition, uh, whether it's a mental health condition or a, a drug addiction condition. Mm -hmm. That's always only an aspect of who they are. There are things I very closely identify with Carl, and he's, he's very anti-authoritarian, and it gets him into trouble. And yet his intentions are generally good. So it's very hard for him to be in the group home and have to put up with the nonsense that they tell him there. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Another story, and how do you pronounce it? Echolalia? Echolalia? I th I've always heard echolalia, but I'm not positive. Echolalia. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the short stories in your collection. It's also set in New York. And it follows the efforts of a counselor who's working with a group of mentally challenged young adults. He's taking them on a field trip, and on the way there, on the subway, there's a run-in with some unsavory characters, uh, or scary characters might be the right word. <laughs> so writers are typically advised, especially in short stories, to keep their characters down to the minimal, you know, one, right. two, three, just, you know, not to have introduced too many two characters. And yet there's like 10 characters in this <laughs> one short story. And I think it's only 12 pages. I don't know how many words it is, but it's, mm. not, it's not a lot. So you create this intense standoff that jumps back and forth to the counselor's messed up love life and back to his charges. How long did it take to define the individual characters so that the reader wouldn't get lost in the chaos? Maybe I should ask, did you get lost in the chaos? <laughs> well, I had to read it, you know, twice. Um, yeah. But no, I mean, they each had their own uniqueness that you were able to keep them apart. And yeah. I just was wondering, it just seemed to me like this was a gargantuan task. And I wonder how long it took you to do it. <laughs> Reminding me of the dead. I, the challenge, I think, was to leave out material. There, there were, um, or to not include too much. These were people that I knew. There was a work situation that I'd had. And they were very colorful, dynamic characters, each with their, their foibles, their, their odd behavior. And just to, I guess, another way of saying, I, I, I wanted to think about the circumstance that the narrator was in. And the characters are important, but more important than probably tracking each one is just this overall feeling of chaos and responsibility that he has. Uh, Nikki is one of the characters. She's certainly very important. She plays importantly into the action. And George. Uh, some of the others, maybe, if you lost track of them a little bit, it, it wouldn't probably disrupt the flow of the story. And one of the writers that I really admire is uh, ZZ Packer. And she's just wonderful at doing this. I, I recommend for anybody who wants to try to throw a lot of characters into a story. She has a story called Brownies from a collection called um, Drinking Coffee Elsewhere. And she gets two whole brownie troops into her story. It's a lot more than I have. And they come fully alive. Yeah. Well, I'll have to check that out. So, yeah. um, Yes, I wanted to know if you channel, we're channeling Joyce, but it sounds like maybe you were channeling Zizi for those who aren't familiar with James Joyce and his story, The Dead. It's a short story in which he has many, many, many characters at a party, and um, somehow they all become distinct. You're listening to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell. We will return to an interview with Daniel Koshner, where we will discuss his writing process. We're going to start talking about writing process and what it's like to 
be a, a person who writes, is published? How do you balance the three roles of teacher, counselor, and writer? Another very good question. The, the teaching aspect has always kept my mind in writing, even when it's been difficult. But it also makes it more difficult in some ways because of the nature of the teaching. I'm teaching writing and I'm doing a lot of editing. And I really have to get away from that for a while, maybe a week after a semester or after a term, to be able to not over-edit myself and let myself finish a sentence. But I, I learn a lot. I think a lot for purposes of teaching about story structure. I read a lot of different stories. I think about what makes them work. And then to have to be in the role to help someone find that. You know, what makes a story special? What did this writer do? Helps me get more focused and read in a different way. Mm -hmm. It's gotten so that I don't think I retain much on a first reading of a story because I know I'm going to read it again and again and again. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of just reading to get the plot and then the second time through it's different and so mm -hmm. on. And so how much of your time is spent between teaching, right? I mean, do you write while you're teaching or do you wait until, you know, there's a school break or how do you do that? I tend to wait until there's a break. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. And the teaching is not all that arduous. The, the work in the group home is, is full time, but the teaching is generally one class per 10 week semester. Uh -huh. um, so it's not too much, but it's a lot of reading. So how often do you write then? It really varies. You know, I've, I've been working on one story for a pretty long time now, and it's only, I think it's about um, coming up to 20 pages, uh, and I haven't figured out where it's going. And I'll pick it up, and I'll read back to where I left off, and that takes a while now because it's as long as it is. I'm a little bit stuck with that one. So I try to pick up, do other things. I do some drawing. I try some poetry and, and see if I can come at it fresh. Do you ever find yourself like thinking, oh, this is a short story, and then you're up to 50,000 words, and you're like, ah. Oh, rarely, <laughs> rarely. Yeah, the, the, that last one that I read from is probably close to 50,000, and I uh -huh. had one other novella that got right about there. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen too often for me, though. And it seems to me the older I get, the less likely that is. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so do you have a dedicated space, or do you just write wherever you are? And that's changed a bit lately. I hope I don't offend anyone. My wife is retired, and we share the space at home. And up to a point, that works well. But lately, I just have to get out of the house for a little while. I take it to the coffee shop. The, the presence of strangers has never been a problem. And sometimes it's kind of stimulating for me. Real interacting is different. And I, I find it can really throw me off. So I kind of have to get out of the house now. When you're writing it, do you write it all and go back? Or do you edit as you go? edit as I go okay. I think was it Dorothy Parker said she'll write seven words and keep five or something like <laughs> yeah. that it's kind of like that the process for me yeah this yeah. seems to be it seems to vary with different writers do you work on multiple stories at the same time or do you just do one at a time these days it's more one at a time it used to be sometimes I would get a couple of things going it's a little bit harder for me to have that level of focus now days months years on a single story or what is your typical time frame or is there one yeah usually hopefully i so if i finish a story <laughs> I'll, I'll noodle around with the beginning i'll hear the character i'll get the voice and what i'll find is if i'll be driving alone in my car and i'll start thinking through the story and if it doesn't really catch fire at all, then that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. But once that does happen, it goes pretty quickly. Mm, okay. right? I want to bring it to some fruition. So that could happen in a couple of days or 
a couple of weeks. It, it really depends on the shape of the story. When creating a collection, how do you decide which stories are included? In this case, I was really focused around different permutations of that separation anxiety idea. It's a condition for children. You know, in the, in the DSM, it's described as usually infancy or early toddlerhood. But I see it through all stages of the life cycle. We, we always regress when, when we go through crisis. It's a, the potential's always there. And so I wanted to, to sort of expand on that. And I saw that in, in some form or other in almost all my stories. It, there's always that sense of worry and that sense of loss. But this became really focused around that. Mm-hmm. Were any of these stories published in other collections and as no, well? the, no. So these they're are all, all only on, in this one. These yeah. are, they've been published, but only but in magazines and right. zines and stuff like that. So, right. Okay. Where can people purchase Separation Anxiety? Certainly online, or you can go direct to the publisher. That's also online. The publisher's up in Oregon, in, uh, in Portland, and they're called Unsolicited Press. Pretty hard to find in bookstores. The, the bookstore in my neighborhood carries it, but it'd have to be in Guerneville, California. I don't know where else you can find it. So do you have any readings lined up where people can come and listen um, in person? I have. I was recently invited to an event. It won't happen until May 11th in Davis. And it's not exactly a reading. Professional actors are going to read one of my stories. And I'll have ah. a chance to get up and talk about it. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah. That'll be really, really fun. Yeah, that does sound interesting. Well, thank you, Daniel, for taking the time to meet with me. Thank you for joining us for Season 3 of Upwelling. You've been listening to an interview with local writer Daniel Koshner about his short story collection, Separation Anxiety. Next, local poet Windflower will read from her upcoming release, Age Brings Him Home to Me. Windflower's poetry collection, Age Brings Him Home to Me, is scheduled for release on February 24th from Finishing Line Press. Windflower currently lives on the Mendocino Coast. She attended the University of Massachusetts in Amherst and holds graduate degrees in English. She co-founded the Feminist Arts Program at the University of Massachusetts Women's Center, published and edited a women's multi-arts magazine, and produced the first National Women's Poetry Festival in 1976. Her poetry has been published in numerous journals and anthologies. Windflower has brought four short poems from her new collection. Welcome, Windflower. Please read your first selection, My grandfather was precise. Well, thank you, Michelle, for inviting me here today. My grandfather was precise. White shirt, tie, and cufflinks. Red wine for lunch, rolling the grapes from his youth around a tongue, still heavy with another language. The wool chestnut color coat, deep brown velvet collar against my chin. Me turning this way and that, sleeves, hem, buttons, one stitch at a time, the needle in his hand candescent brown chestnuts. His fingers find the scores tiny as sparrows' feet. He removes shell and skin, gives birth to the nutty flavor, earthy and sweet, soft and buttery. Like those moments, he pulls a silver dollar from his pocket and places it in my hand. Thank you. It's a beautiful poem. When I first read this piece. It touched me and it made me think of my own grandfather. I'm sure it will do that for everyone. (laughs) I especially like the way you use the word chestnut to describe both the nut and the color. And chestnuts are by nature nostalgic because of the holidays and the decimation of the tree through disease. Is this a connection you were aiming for? Well, definitely the nostalgia around holidays. When I was writing the poem, I made no association with disease and decimation. My grandfather just loved chestnuts, and whenever I think of him, I think of chestnuts. It just is there, and 
the association for me is firmly rooted in warmth and love. But it was an interesting association for another poem. I'm going to have her go ahead and read her second selection, which is She Stood at the Second Floor Window. She stood at the second floor window, mouth full of clothespins. My two small hands lifting the wet laundry out of the basket, piece by piece, are offering to every bead of morning light wedged within the courtyard a stained glass basilica straining to fill the rectangular kitchen window, her small frame bending, her hands sculpting lasagna and manigot, ricotta cheesecakes and warm chestnut pies, the taste of centuries held in the lips of clothespins. Thank you. Is this piece about your grandmother? Yes, it is. It's my grandma Lucy, my maternal grandmother, and the last poem was my maternal grandfather. Did you spend a lot of time with your grandparents as a child? I did. I did. Um, they lived about 20 minutes away from us in the Bronx. I grew up in Nourishell, born in the Bronx, but grew up in Nourishell. And every Sunday we'd have dinner with them, and all the holidays we were at their house. And when I was very young, I often spent a weekend at their apartment. They had a real significant presence in our life. My grandmother only had a fourth grade education. She had to quit school in fourth grade because her father died and she needed to help support the family. So she became a seamstress, which she did for a long time. So both my grandmother and grandfather were good with their hands and, and sewing. And in many ways, my grandmother and I were polar opposite. But we always circled back to each other because we shared an interest in tarot readings and talking about the changing patterns of weather. And we loved food, and she made fantastic food. And we really loved each other. So she, they, she was very special to me. The title of your poetry collection, Age Brings Them Home to Me, how does that relate to these poems that you've written about your grandparents? And have you written about your grandparents before, or is it specifically for this collection? Well, this collection comes out, some of it out of previous writing. What I did for this collection, I divided the book actually into three parts. The first part is really about my ancestry. So my grandparents, my parents, my growing up. The second part is much more rooted in me as an adult, more rooted now in my adulthood. And the third part focuses more on social justice. I was very intentional about this arc yeah, so some of these poems were written more recently. I would say most of them were written recently, but some of the seeds of them come from previous writing. You know, I've been writing since I was like nine years old, but it wasn't until I moved up here on the coast six years ago and was not working full time that I really recommitted myself to the, my writing. And this book came out of that recommitment. Yeah, that's great. I fully understand that. Once you're freed up from your day-to-day -day working life, you have just so much more time. Okay, her next selection is called It is the Women Who. It is the women who look up at the sky and see their children nestled in the moon, take the map of the world in their hands and hold it like Venetian glass, sing wild horses to a sanctuary away from herding helicopters, Roam the woods, counting mushrooms to feed the world. Walk for miles, feet bare, children in their arms. Stand side by side, a battered fence. It is the women who hem the skirt of the ocean. Gosh, 
I just love that piece. I had you. And I wanted to, I'm going to give a shout out to Carol Shields, who she passed away in 2002, so she won't hear it. But um, I had just finished reading her book, Unless, which is a story about a mother and a writer. And it's explored the theme of being a woman and being a mother during a difficult time in her daughter's life. And this poem, it just interconnected with that book. And I just felt like it was an extension of Carol Shields' novel. The stanza, take the map of the world in their hands and hold it like Venetian glass. It was the woman as mother, as child, not just to her children, but to earth. Tell me about your inspiration for this poem. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Sometimes a poem starts with an image for me, and this is one of those poems. It just comes to me, and actually it was the stanza that you just referred to that was the image that came to me. And it was right before the election in 2020 and we were in the midst of COVID. I was thinking about the world and how for me, the hope rests with the power, love, tenderness, commitment, fierceness of women. And that's how it emerged. Even though I refer, have a couple of stanzas where I absolutely talk about women as mothers with children, it's important for me to say that we're much more than that. And there's some women who never want to be mothers and are not identified with that role. So I feel the poem reflects lots of different identities for, for women. And I think that's just important. I think we are many things. And yes, we are nurturers. And I don't think only mothers are nurturers. I think women by nature are nurturers. And okay. maybe I shouldn't even say that because maybe some women don't feel that way, you know, and I don't want to put us in any box. Right, right. Well, I'm sure there are some women who are not nurturers by nature, <laughs> but the majority that I know are. Let's go ahead and read your final piece, which is A Beginning with No End. And this is a poem for my wife, Linda. A Beginning with No End. I left the ice hanging from branches, like the crawling, creaking of reclaimed barn board in the wind, freezing the locks of cars. The home where we began to make a life together, that frigid first winter with its plexiglass windows and hollow cord door, our coats frozen statues on hooks against its flimsy back. Our dogs bounding out the door into the full force of February, returning with eyelashes glistening like diamonds. Stars leaning into dawn, our waterbed a boat in its own warm harbor, our crisp breath against the bedroom air, our flushed breath against each other's bodies. These same bodies, 38 years later, living on the Mendocino coast, cliffs painted with purple ice plants, tidal pools of sun-drenched sea stars, still remember all the love held in 1,100 square feet, where we first plumbed the depths of our desires, kisses that melted glaciers, kisses that know neither season nor coast. Right. Thank you so much. So it's a love story. It's your, your love story, and it's deeply personal. When you write poetry, how do you decide what parts of your life to reveal and are there places you can't or won't go, at least publicly? Yeah, well, it's interesting. This poem evolved from a workshop that I took with Ellen Bass. 
that focused on transferring feeling through details, images, and metaphor. And this poem started with a winter image, and I just let my pen take me where she wanted to go. Um, so I really appreciate one of Ellen's basic tenets is your poems should surprise yourself, should surprise you. I imagine that's probably true for all writing, but as a poet, that's how she talks about it. And I was delighted how this poem turned into this love poem about Linda and my life together. So it was a wonderful surprise, and it just evolved. And I was really taken by that, because I don't think I believed that before I wrote this poem, that poems can just surprise us. Sometimes I am more conscious about what I'm writing and have more of a sense of where I want to go. But this poem, I had no idea where it was going. So I loved that about it. So you just sort of got into the zone and the muse took you where you Yeah, where exactly. You. Yeah. And yeah. as for deciding which parts of my life to reveal, I don't censor. I'm a pretty open person. I'm kind of what you see is what you get. And I feel my poetry reflects this. So I haven't really struggled with what's public and what's private for me. So let's talk about publishing and sort of the effort it takes to, to get things moving in that direction. Your publishing age brings them home to me through Finishing Line Press. They have an extensive catalog. How did you end up going with them? Well, you know, I, as I, I mentioned earlier, I really committed myself to my writing when I moved here, and I had this commitment that I would have a book published by the time I was 75, and I turned 75 on December 3rd. So a year before, I got accepted. So I was very excited by that. And I attended this fantastic workshop by Tupelo Press, which provided you with lots of practical tips and strategies and tools for putting together a book, as well as giving you very valuable critique on your work. And at the end of that four-day conference, they made recommendations as to which publishers they felt would align with your writing. And Finishing Press was one that they gave me. So they were one of a handful of publishers I sent my book out to. And within a very short, relatively short turnaround time, I heard from them that they had accepted it. And I was just delighted. And that's how that happened. And I had also known other poets who'd been published by Finishing Line Press. So I asked them about their experience with the press before I decided to accept it and withdraw my manuscript from other publishers. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Finishing Line Press is a small press, woman-owned small press. Yes, they read it and then produce and publish the book. But I do get very involved in the promotion for the book. So thank you for this interview. Yeah, um, and that's okay. an important part right. of the work of putting right. a book out. Yeah. Is this your first poetry collection? Yes, it is. And I'm very excited by it. I, yes, I'm delighted that okay. it's happened. Have any of the poems been published as individual pieces? Yeah, they in, have been. They've been in, in any of the anthologies or, or magazines? Or? There have been several of them. And that's also just to know that I think publishers look to see if you've had your work published in other publications. So that's part of what you submit when you're doing your manuscript. You have a you have a acknowledgement page and on that page you identify where you have had other work published that are that's in the manuscript. So yes, I have um, both in literary journals, anthologies, um, which include some international publications. So yeah. Oh, great, great. So how would you advise well, what would you tell aspiring poets who are interested in publishing their works? Okay, I'd tell them to take workshops. I would tell them to join writing groups. 
definitely right outside your comfort zone. Like one of the things I did um, the beginning of the year in which I submitted my manuscript before the manuscript conference is I did 30 poems in 30 days. I didn't think it was possible. So a lot of those poems became work that is in the book. I would tell them to submit work, just throw it out there. It's really, really important to do that. At the same time, it's important to review the, the publications that you're going to submit your work to to see if there is an alignment with your values, with the kind of work that you do. And Submittable is great for that. Are you familiar with Submittable? Okay, so I just tell people, go on to Submittable. Also, we'll get Poets and Writers Magazine. They list all lots and lots of publications that are looking for submissions. I also would say, join the Writers of the Mendocino Coast. I would say, submit your work to them for their annual anthology. Um, and I think most importantly, you got to believe in yourself. And it doesn't matter if you get rejected. Just keep doing it, because you'll find people that will love your work. Sure, sure. Well, I think that uh, is great, not just for poets, but for fiction writers as exactly. well. Exactly, so yes. <laughs> where will people be able to purchase Age Brings Him Home to Me? The book is from Finishing Line Press, so they can order the book online. And would you like me to give the, please, the link? Please, please. Okay, so yeah. it's www.finishinglinepress.com. So that's one place that after the publication, it's going to be available on Amazon. And I'm also very happy to say that the end of March, beginning of April, I'm going to be doing a reading at Gallery Bookstore. So there will be copies there for sale. Thank you, Windflower. Thank you for joining us for Season 3 of Upwelling. You've been listening to an interview with local writer Daniel Koshner about his short story collection, Separation Anxiety, and local poet Windflower about her upcoming release, Age Brings Him Home to Me. It's Leap Year, Upwelling broadcasts on the fifth Wednesdays, so our next episode will be Wednesday, May 29th at 9 a.m. Our intro and exit music are provided by Paul Blackwell. To share this show with other listeners, go to kzyx.org or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg, 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org. Please consider donating by clicking the red button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.